0: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guest and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck.
2: Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. We have a great show for you today because this show is going to help you understand something that we do every day, several times a day, and that's eat. And how what we choose to eat and how we choose to get our food affects environmental protection. You know, we hear a lot of buzzwords these days like locally grown, organic, free range, we're beginning to see these buzzwords in a grocery store. And they're supposed to help us distinguish good food choices from poor food choices. Um, we have some sense that these words mean that food is healthy or humanely produced or somehow environmentally preferable, but it's hard to be sure. So today we have an expert in the field. We'll be joined by Dr. Carol Lee Sly. She's with the Center for Ecoliteracy. She served as the project leader for a book called Big Ideas, which provides a foundation for understanding and also teaching children about food and food production. Her book is designed to help people use this knowledge to understand basically the ecology of the natural world and how we as human beings connect to it. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Carolee Sly with us. Welcome to Go Green Radio,
3: Carolee. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be talking to you.
2: Well, you are one of my favorite environmental educators in the whole world, and I am just thrilled to death to have you on the show. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you to describe to our listeners how you got involved in environmental education in the first place. Everybody that I know in this field comes to it in their own way, kind of on their own path, and I'd love for you to share your journey with our listeners.
3: Well, sure. It happened a while ago. I got involved in environmental ed as a 22-year-old teacher in the Napa Valley, and after a couple of years of teaching my darling fourth-graders, I enrolled in this professional development week up in the eastern Sierra in Plumas Eureka State Park and it literally changed my life. We spent each day with a different expert, a botanist one day and a geologist another and all day, every day we were hiking about, learning in the field with these phenomenal guides and there were no lectures really. It was just their wisdom of that part of California and after seven days knowing that I wanted to focus my teaching on the environment I continued uh-huh. as a classroom teacher for nearly a decade and I love teaching um, but I also applied for and received a mini grant from the state Department of ed to teach environmental ed to kids all through my school so um, I was able to take kids outside and teach them grades k through six and and I discovered that I had a captive audience rather than a captured audience like most classes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's a great way of putting it, captive versus captured. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. And, and, you know, kids have, as you know, an affinity with the natural world. So I had this incredible fortune of of having that relationship with them. And so, of course, that led to other paths, writing curriculum and getting involved in teacher training and my own environmental ed nonprofit, which, you you know, is how I met you, and, yeah. uh, and now working for the Center for Eco-Literacy.
2: Well, when you and I first met, and that was back in 2002, I, I was very green in the green world. I had just written the Go Green Initiative, and we were launching it in our very first school, and you were the executive director for, a not, which I just loved, it's called Community Learning Services. And um, you did some really amazing programs I and mean, it taught kids about the environment, but food was a big component. It was a way for you to bring the kids into the subject of environmental education in a really natural way. And you even brought families together for environmental education, but you used food in some very unique ways. Talk to our listeners about how you connected food and environmental education.
3: Well, yeah, you know, just like I said, I discovered a long time ago that nature resonates with most kids. Well, food resonates with just about everybody. Right. Also, food just offers a perfect context for teaching kids and their families about the environment. I mean, it's fundamental to the sustainability of all life systems. We all eat, like you said, and it's something we share with other living things. So now that I work for the Center for Ecolit... they've had a long, well-known history of teaching about sustainability and food long before I came along. And, you know, we as a society have just gotten so far away from where our food originates and what our body needs from food and even what food tastes good. And it's getting well-deserved attention now because there's so many food-related health concerns like diabetes and obesity and high blood pressure. And now food security is growing as a concern. Um, you know, food's starting to compete with energy for our farmland. So That's land that was, once true. was dedicated to food is now, you know, dedicated to growing corn for cars.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this is actually, we haven't seen it as much in the United States, but we've, we're seeing it in other countries where there are, you know, actual physical conflicts over food, um, because there's just a lack of availability. When it's more lucrative for a farmer to grow corn for ethanol than to grow it for food, there becomes scarcity, and um, and I think that you know these are these don't have to be unintended consequences of public policy when we. We can reasonably predict that that could happen if we take food from the belly and put it into the gas tank. Exactly. But one of the, yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that I remember when you were doing community learning services is that you would have family events on campus in the evening and you fed people. And that was an important way to get families to come and actually learn about environmental education. I mean, I'm a mom of three kids in public schools, and if they brought home a flyer that said, come to the school this evening, you know, when you're tired and after work and learn about environmental education, even though I'm very interested in that topic, I might say, oh, gosh, I, you know, I just can't do one more thing. But you got a lot of people to come to your events on campus in the evening. How did you do that?
3: Well, a lot of it was because we fed them. Um, yeah. You know, we did offer dinner. I mean, as a mom myself of then young kids, it would have been impossible, like you said, to, you know, provide dinner, make sure they got their homework done, um, and then take them to an evening event. So one of the things we did was we always tried to provide dinner if it was in the evening, and a lot of times it was participatory. We'd have, as part of the program, have the families help make the food um and it was usually it f- fresh well it was always fresh and usually organic and and then the other thing we did was negotiate with the teachers to give free homework passes so that, that <laughs> became, <laughs> it just came to our program got off the hook for their homework. Um oh, very it smart. is hard. It is hard for families and um I, we just found that by feeding them and then using food as the takeoff talking about the environment was just
2: a natural. It is. It's very natural because I think sometimes we forget, uh, you know, many of us are, are living in urban and suburban areas where we don't see our food grow. Exactly. Um, and, and we don't see that the water that irrigates the fields that end up becoming our corn and bread and things like that, that that water, um, you yes. know, if it's it's polluted... It could end up polluting our food. We just don't think about it so much. You know, I, I see green everywhere. It wasn't so cool when, when I started the Go Green initiative and back when you and I first met, it wasn't as trendy as it is now.
3: Yeah.
2: And there are no shortage of of environmental programs out there, and everybody has a hook. Some organizations use polar bears or global warming or some other topic to get people's attention. But I find your approach so unique. You use food. So talk to us about how you use food as a way to get people involved in and interested in environmental appreciation and education.
3: Well, as we've said, everybody likes to eat, and most people do it at least three times a day. And it's a local environmental issue no matter where you live. So we see it as a key component to sustainable living, and that's really our mission Um, is teaching kids and families how to live sustainably. And our current food system is unsustainable. I mean, the energy it takes to produce food and transport it and process it and then dispose of it, it's outrageous in terms of energy and cost and the health consequences it takes. So how we provision ourselves with food is a part of a bigger picture of how humankind provisions itself every day and the toll it's taking on the planet. So we use food as a takeoff place for really talking about what it means to live sustainably, and you know, a lot of times the first place people turn to is they start looking at the school food, yeah, and thinking, yeah. what is this about? I mean, here the kids are learning in science and health classes about good nutrition and you know the science of of growing food, and then and then they walk into the cafeteria. And, you know, they see stuff that's really hardly even edible and not recognizable as food. So oftentimes it leads into families uh, and teachers and administrators wanting to take action to, to practice what they preach and make the food in the school as healthy as, you know, what we're teaching kids in science and health.
2: Well, and, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Um, The same is true for what we were seeing in terms of environmental education before the Go Green initiative came around. You know, at that time when I I wrote it, environmental education was somebody coming in and and doing a, a class or a school assembly talking about recycling or something like that. But then when the kids went back to the classroom, they weren't practicing it. They would see their teacher, you know, throw paper into the garbage instead of recycling it so the lesson was undone. So you're exactly right. I mean, if if at school or if at home uh, kids are, are being exposed to healthy food choices and, you know, environmentally responsible ways of producing food, and then it's undone if they're served, you know, food that contradicts those lessons in the school cafeteria, we're really wasting our time if we don't underscore the lessons that we're teaching them by showing them what it looks like in the cafeteria.
3: Exactly. The kids don't miss that that mismatch, you know, of how we smart. behave and what comes out <laughs> of our mouth.
2: They sure do. Well, we are going to be back in just a few moments after this commercial break. We'll be back with more from Dr. Kira Lee Sly talking about food and environmental protection. Don't go away.
1: your world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com.
0: Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi. You can trust me. I'm African American, just like you. So, here's the low monthly payments and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back.
1: What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council.
0: Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel.
3: Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah,
1: be like, oh! Uh. oh! Uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are talking today to Dr. Lee Sly. She's helping us understand the link between food and environmental protection and just how very important it is to think about where our food comes from and what kind of environmental impact uh various public policy has, various actions on the part of humans may have on the healthiness and the sustainability of our food supply. Um, Carolee, I want to quote one of the opening pages of your book, Big Ideas, and ask you to comment on this quote. This is what it says. Food is essential for our survival, yet most people never see food before it gets to the grocery store, and primary-age children may only have a vague idea about where their food comes from. Looking at the food we eat and learning where it comes from are important first steps for exploring the impacts of our food choices on society and the environment. Carolee, I'd love for you to give us two or three examples of ways in which our food choices can impact society and the environment. Just take your time with this because I think this is a really interesting concept. Our food choices impact society and the environment. How so?
3: Well, let me start by telling you about an experiment I tried last summer where I tried to eat everything – from within a hundred and fifty mile radius of my home in Walnut Creek,
2: uh-huh.
3: you know, here I was teaching about the importance of local, locally grown food, and so I really thought I would try this experiment. And it was so hard, even though we live in one of the richest agricultural areas in the world. And the hardest things to find were anything made with grains. I could find like crackers and bread and things that were that were packaged here, but hard to find things that were actually from grains grown here. And, of course, coffee was impossible. But a real shocker was when I went to a, a trendy grocery store to buy an organically grown tomato, and here we were at the height of the tomato harvest in California, and my organic tomato was from Canada. And what was that about? I thought about the miles that tomato traveled and the fuel used and the air pollution of its transportation. And this was an organic tomato, so it didn't include all the, you know, all the toll on the environment that a conventional tomato would have with herbicides and pesticides. So if I go to the farmer's market and buy my tomatoes, from a local organic farmer like Janet Brown of All Star Organics in Marin County. How does that affect the environment? Well, I know that Janet cares deeply about her soil and that her soil's a living soil that is actively breaking down organic matter into nutrients that that plant can use. So her tomatoes always have exactly what they need to grow. And her tomatoes will be healthier than a conventional tomato, which may have up to 30 fertilizers and pesticides in it. And I also know that Janet's tomatoes are healthier for me as a result of her soil. That organically grown tomato is loaded with micronutrients that are important to my nutrition. And her tomatoes taste so much better. And they'll have been picked within 24 hours and transported less than an hour as opposed to a conventional tomato, which may have been picked you know, weeks beforehand and transported over 2000 miles. So it makes a huge difference on the environment to really think about where your food comes from. You know, if you Well, touch yeah. it, go ahead.
2: Well, you know and I you you hear this um, you know, these stories about the 1500 mile salad, you know, that the lettuce and the tomatoes and the cucumbers all come from different places. Um why is that? I mean, why have we gone from a society where, you know, everybody grows and, and purchases food that's nearby to a society where we're buying tomatoes that could be grown, you know, like you said, less than an hour away, but we're buying them from another country. What what has happened to our society to cause that?
3: Well, you know, farming is now a factory model. I mean, it's industrial farming, and so these huge farms that are thousands of acres and produce, you know, thousands of tons of tomatoes are just massively trucked all over the place. And, you know, they're cheaper for grocery stores to buy because the water and the land are subsidized. And, you know, the organic grower like Janet isn't subsidized and um, she doesn't grow. It's an economy of scale. She doesn't grow enough to you know, meet the needs of Walmart or Safeway, but um, her fruit just tastes so much better and is so much healthier. And I think we have gotten out of whack as farming has really become an industrial model rather than a, a farming, you know, as you think of it in a traditional sense.
2: And is that, you know, that probably makes our food more affordable, I guess? Um, does it make our food, you know, more accessible, um
3: well, it makes us more affordable at the cash register. It appears it's more affordable because, as I said, it's it's so subsidized. I mean, those big farmers get mass subsidies and water subsidi- subsidies, and so it we're not really paying for what that tomato costs to produce. And Janet and other organic farmers don't get those kinds of subsidies. But the other place that we're not counting the cost is on the, back end of our health. I mean, we don't count in the health of eating, you know, the illnesses that we get from pesticides and herbicides and food that isn't fresh. And so it's really a fallacy that it's cheaper. And as far as accessibility, yeah, I suppose in other parts of the country, you know, they can eat things year-round that don't grow where they are, and that's true for us too. But, you know, learning to eat seasonally is, again, more compatible with the planet. And, my gosh, around here we can eat high on the hog, you know, year-round, even though it doesn't mean necessarily having everything available to us year-round.
2: Right. You know, one of the things that I like about your book, Big Ideas, which is available on the Center for Literacy's website, one of the things I really like about it is that it talks about the many people – Um, who are involved and work very hard to ensure that we have food for purchase. I mean, it talks about farmers, and it talks about um, their work. What kinds of discussions have you heard kids having around these kinds of jobs? Do you think that studying food production helps to elevate these important jobs in the minds of children?
3: Well, you know, it's funny. Most kids still think about farming as, you know, a, a smallish field with a red barn and a farmer in mm-hmm. overalls, <laughs> surrounded by a few pigs and chickens and maybe a cow. And if you look at the way many foods are packaged, like if you look at the packaging of like bacon, you'll see why that image is alive and well. And yet, most farms are nothing like that, um, and most food isn't produced in any way that resembles what's featured on the packages. But I think when students meet an organic or a small, any small farmer, they realize the incredible knowledge of food and weather and local plants and animals and, you know, knowledge of the plants and animals they're raising as well as the ones that are living in the ecosystem around them and the deep respect they have for the land and the hard work they put into bringing quality food to us and that really does appeal to some kids as good, honest, meaningful work and i do I do see kids having just a natural love of the idea of growing their own food and I mean you've never seen a kid love a radish or a or a tomato or a carrot as much as when they 've grown it themselves
2: that 's very true, and we 're seeing even in a lot of urban schools. Um, school gardens going in just so kids can can become connected with the whole life cycle of vegetables and things that they can actually eat, you know, growing things and learning the science behind it and what have you. I think a lot of people, you know, even adults, regardless of of what we're trying to teach children, but a lot of people just have no idea about how public policy around food production shapes the food that we have available to us. Talk to our listeners a little bit about how you introduce concepts like farm subsidies and trade issues to children, because you do talk about that in the book.
3: Yeah, (laughs) but yikes, you know, there's a place, there's certainly a place for talking about food policies in the upper grades, like high school, Mm -hmm. but um, as you'll see in big ideas, you know, you have to build that knowledge base over time from elementary grades on With the little guys, we certainly don't start there. We start by having them taste different fresh produce and teach them to pay attention to color and flavor and texture. And I guess, you know, we start developing their palate. And then we engage them in growing food in the gardens. Yes, school gardens have really taken off, and that's so wonderful. So the kids taste you know, peas and strawberries and radishes that they've grown themselves, the garden's such a perfect place for them to see food production at its foundation. And then, as you mentioned, they begin to learn the science embodied in a garden ecosystem. You know, the science of the soil and pollinators and decomposers. And it's also great if they can meet a farmer and see the care and love that goes into growing healthy foods. But then by upper grades, you know, they're ready to do things like trace their meal back to its origin and identify the steps it takes to get our food from farm to table. And they start examining all the ways that food is processed before it gets to our plate. And that is that, fantastic. Yeah, that's that fantastic the groundwork, you know.
2: And thank you so much, Carolee, for that great work you're doing. And thank you for being with us on Go Green Radio. We'd love to have you back again. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back after this commercial break.
0: Deal with celebrities and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
1: For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. We just talked to Dr. Carolee Sly, and we were talking about the link between environmental protection, making sure that our environment and the environment in which we grow our food contributes to good human health. And and conversely, how what we choose to eat can affect the environment. Carolee was talking about how if we choose a tomato that comes from a local farmer's market versus a tomato that comes from another country, um, you know, that really has an impact on the environment in terms of shipping that food um, all over the place and uh, what kind of an impact that can have on our health. Um, We are going to shift gears, same subject, different recipient, and that would be to our pets. A lot of us try to make great healthy food choices for ourselves, for our children, but a lot of us have furry friends in the house. And so we're going to be talking with one of my very good friends, Nicole Janssens. I call her Nikki. Uh, We've known each other since elementary school, since before braces. And she has a great new company called Bidoka, B-I-D-O-C-A. You can go to her website at Bidoka.com. We're going to talk about her website. But she's going to help us understand the link between pet food choices and the environment. And I am so thrilled to have her on Go Green Radio today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Nikki. Hi, Jill. How are you? I'm awesome, and it's always good to talk to you. And uh, even better to have you on the show, because I want you to really share your expertise and your knowledge and the new endeavor that you're uh, in, in joining upon uh, with Badoka to talk about good, healthy pet food choices. And we just had a fantastic discussion with Carolee Sly, and we were talking about human food production. But I want for you to share with us um, some of the things that you understand about how pet food is produced. And let's start with the basics, Nikki. Where does pet food come from? Does it come from the same farms and ranches that produce human food or somewhere else?
4: Well, Jill, unfortunately, this is the scary part. We would like to think, I mean, our pets are such a huge part of our family, and we want to think that we're giving them um, the best quality food with all of the nutrients that they need um, You know, and we'd love to say, of course, if we have a USDA quality steak that, you know, the same kinds of meats and products are in our pet food. Unfortunately, it's not. Um, Pet food can come from a number of different resources, uh, some of them not too appealing. Um, It's really important that consumers do the research to make sure that their pets are getting that human-grade quality food. Um, You know, a lot of times, and, and I'm not really sure how many people actually take the time to go look at the ingredients of the pet food they're buying. You know, a lot of times we rely on advertising, marketing, things that we hear that say, oh, 100% natural. Well, if you go to your pet food and you look at the ingredients, if the first product isn't a meat, um, you know, a lot of times you have a tendency to see things that say buy products, you should be a little concerned. What is the
2: byproduct, by the way? What's the definition of that?
4: Well, you know, and that's kind of funny, too, that byproduct doesn't really have a definition. It means that it can really be um, any part of, you know, when you're talking about meat, and this kind of gets a little ugly sometimes, Um, it can be any part of a carcass. Um, A lot of times these ranches and farms, they'll have um, animals that die, Legally, mm. a byproduct can come from that. Um, gross. I yeah. don't want to feed
2: my dogs that. <laughs> so that um, You
4: know, all of these materials are sent to what's called rendering plants, and they denature the materials to get them out of the human food chain. So right then, that should be a big clue that if they're not fit for human consumption, why would we want to be giving that to our animals? Those materials are sprayed with horrible substances, like some of them could include um, these crude carbolic acid, fuel oil, or citronella. Well, obviously, your pet is not going to want to eat something like that. So that's when these rendering plants um, end up shipping them off to different manufacturers and, um, you know, companies that you're familiar with that that take these products. And then they use different animal fats, all kinds of things to make them appealing to the pets. So when you think about a lot of these pet foods, um, you know, they're not coming from the healthiest of resources, and that's something that we should definitely be concerned about.
2: Well, it is concerning because I think, you know, I I have been a pet owner my whole life, and this is just a topic I've never even considered. You know, you just place your trust in the usual brands and hope for the best, but um, I've got to think that, You know, there's got to be some kind of regulation for pets and pet food. You know, we talk about with human food, the USDA and the FDA regulating, you know, where our food comes from and the conditions under which our food is produced. Do those organizations also regulate pet food?
4: Um, The FDA has a division, um, and it's... It's the Center for Veterinary Medicine, and they're the ones that kind of focus more on the the pet food industry. Um, You know, they look at animal drugs, medicated feeds, food additives, and feed ingredients, including pet food. However, um, you know, a lot of times they focus more on the health claims and the packaging of pet food manufacturers, such as some of them say, oh, our product helps prevent Um, disease, you know, whatever the disease is, cardiovascular, arthritis, things like that. You'll see a lot of that marketing on the packages. So that department, um, those are the kind of things that they they focus on to regulate the disclaimers of um, different pet food manufacturers. Another company that was established in 1958 is the Pet Food Institute. Um, They represent about 97% of all dog and cat food produced in the United States. However, again, um, they really monitor kind of media relations. They do go before Congress and, uh, you know, talk about different issues. But one of the things that we found is they don't formally disclose all of the measures they take in these monitoring processes and the ingredients and things. There is one other organization. It's the Association of American Feed Control Officials. However, they're not a government agency, so they don't really have an authority on defining the ingredients or the labeling or analysis of pet food. Um, And another uh, conflict of interest also is that most of their members are on the payrolls of a lot of the large pet food companies. So, you know, it's kind of hard to um, get, you know, really adequate, informative information from them if they're swayed towards the products that they're already generating.
2: Well, and that's so true. I mean, you know, and and we see this with other types of public policy as well. It's one thing to have regulations on the books, but enforcement is where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> and if you've got a bunch of folks who are profiting from, you know, a certain product or a certain, um, you know, turning the other way type of enforcement policy, then you know, that's not a reliable regulation system. It relies Absolutely. on Absolutely. I mean, that we
4: really would like to um, really start making a difference, and I, I think that in the near future you're going to see a lot of new legislation and laws focusing on um, required nutrient levels and um, not just general ideas and, and things that people can kind of take shortcuts and um you know, skirt the... I think that, you know, these pet food manufacturers need to really become a lot more socially responsible and realize that, you know, it's something that you guys had talked about before with Carole, Dr. Carley and her, your earlier discussion that, you know, by having inadequate ingredients in a pet food, you're also creating a lot of um, issues with pet health care, you know, I mean, so it's just like if you... As a human were to eat cheeseburgers and french fries every day it's really going to undermine your overall health and then you know you talk about the expenses of health care the same applies to the pet industry and you know, that's
2: our- that's a great point i mean that that 's really true, and I think that a lot of pet owners um would appreciate that logic and maybe have never even thought about it before. Now, you know, Nikki, as you know, you and I have been talking about this just as, as pals and buddies, but I want to let all my Go Green Radio listeners know, uh, my family and I just recently adopted uh, two little, they're little now, but they're growing fast, Newfoundland puppies. They were rescued from the Central Valley of California. Um, they were actually on a list of pets that were, or potential pets that were going to be euthanized within 24 hours. And Tony LaRussa, World Series winning coach of the Oakland A's and formerly the St. Louis Cardinals, he and his wife Elaine have an animal rescue foundation out here in California and that's where we got our puppies. I love these little guys. They're only 11 weeks old and I want them to live long, healthy lives. But Nikki, I'll be honest, I don't know the first thing about how to shop for their their food and how to be a discriminating shopper. Can you give us some tips on what we should be looking for in pet food to make sure that it's healthy.
4: Sure, absolutely. You know what? In the simplest terms, just think about what foods constitute a healthy diet for humans. Animals have a lot of the same needs, and you certainly don't want your pet to have a substandard diet. So there are some general guidelines that you can look at. So, again, like we were talking about before, when you look at your dog food, and same thing with cat food, if you... um, If you go to the ingredients list, and I think if you remember back in science when you were in grade school or growing up and they (laughs) taught you about an ingredient list, the ones first on the list have um, the the highest uh, portion or percentage of the ingredients. So um, if you want to be feeding your pet good quality food and they need to have a good protein, whether it's meat, fish, turkey, chicken, lamb, um, whatever it is, that needs to be one of the first ingredients, if not the first ingredient on the list. Um, secondly, so pets also need their carbs and veggies, but they need to be um, good quality carbs that um, that their bodies can use as, as a good resource for fuel. So like whole grains, um, pets really, really thrive on brown rice, barley, and things like sweet potatoes for vegetables. They, they really seem to, it's great for their coats, um, has good nutritional value. Also, you're also going to see a fat or an oil listed in the product, which is good for them. They they all need healthy fats and oils. And But it needs to be a named fat, like it, it should say chicken fat or sunflower oil. Um, ah. so, product, so we know where it actually
2: comes from and not
4: just fat right, or right, oil. Exactly, That's interesting. Because there are some, some fats from, like, non-specific sources um, and synthetic preservatives and things like some mm, Good and stuff. And, and Nikki, so, we're going to be back with more on this because this is really fascinating.
2: I'm learning okay. a ton. Okay. Right, okay. Don't go away. We'll be right back after these commercials with more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? My name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism
0: is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote. And then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
1: The Interstate Sportsman Talk Radio Show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join host Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We've got a lot of great information coming your way. This show is just jam-packed with awesome information. We're talking about food. We've talked about human food in the first segment of the show. We talked about how our choices that we make and what we buy can have a huge impact on the environment, whether we choose to have food that comes from good, healthy farming practices that are nearby that don't require a lot of transportation, or if we choose otherwise, what kind of an impact that can have on our health and on the environment. During this half of the show, we're talking to Nicole Janssen. She's the Director of Business Development for a new company that is really exciting. We're talking about pet food choices and how important it is that we use the power of the purse. You know, when we purchase good, healthy food for ourselves or for our pets, we're driving the market toward Good Practices, Environmentally Responsible, Healthy Practices in Food Productions. And Nicole has just started a company. I want you guys to open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.bidoka.com. Now, that's spelled B as in bird, I-D-O-C-A, Bidoka.com. And this is her new company helping us as pet owners who love our furry friends make the best choices Um, about, you know, healthy foods for our pets and also environmentally responsible food for our pets. Nikki, we were talking in the last segment about the ingredient list that we need to make sure we're looking for in our pet food. But, you know, there's something so much more foundational about what you're doing. You're really talking about natural and holistic pet foods. Talk to us about what Badoka's standards are for pet food and what we should be looking for for really the best choices for our pets.
4: Sure, absolutely, Jill. Um, Well, you know, I I think that there's a lot of um, companies out there that are using the terms natural, holistic, um, organic, things like that. So, you know, again, it's really important. And we'll put a list up on the site of things that should be in your animal's pet food and um, things that you should avoid. So you'll be able to see those and use those kind of um, as guidelines for things that would lead for a healthy uh, diet for your pets. You know, and also, you know, we have been talking about pets or, uh, and pet food, but there's also a lot of things that um, pertain to the environment, uh, other pet products, and, and there's some great companies that we're working with that um, have eco-friendly bedding, non-toxic chew toys, um, and some companies that really uh, produce and manufacture locally, which is a, a great stimulus for our own environment. Um, They try to minimize waste, um, and they they do a lot of things that um, recycling scrap materials and um, things that are really beneficial to the pet industry. So so that's something that we really want to focus on as well.
2: I love that. And the fact is, you know, a lot of people who listen to Go Green Radio really want to do the right thing. We want to live green, but sometimes we feel like it's tough to find the products that we need. Sometimes, uh, you know, we've talked to, to the smart mama. Smartmama.com. She's one of my good friends. And she was talking about when her children were young, it was difficult to find uh, good, healthy, eco-friendly baby food. And now that there's more education around that, those products are available. What do you think the impact will be if, you know, Vidoka is as successful as I know it's going to be? How do you see your efforts to educate consumers about environmentally preferable and healthy pet products? Um, How do you think you're going to be able to move the market in that direction so that those options are more available?
4: Well, you know, I think that, and like you said, you know, over the years that information has become much more readily available. There's a lot more places that you can go to now. Um, Even some of the grocery stores are really starting to carry um, some natural um, and organic pet products. Um, So there's a lot more resources that people can, um, can access. And I think that, too, you know, it's kind of been a big misconception that that some of these choices are much more expensive, so your overall cost of raising a pet becomes a, a bigger burden. And, and really, that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. Just to give you an example of, um, I have two labs, and before I, you know, years ago I started doing all this research, I was feeding them, you know, just your average um, highly accessible pet food that you could get in a grocery store, like you said, and and I thought I had done my due diligence and, you know, read a lot of the ingredients and stuff, and I, uh, I thought I was making a good choice. Well, then when I started doing this research and I found out that, um, you know, I, I picked a more natural dog food for them. And there's some natural pet markets around. Well, it turned out I was having to feed them each like six to eight cups of food a day with this previous dog food that I was using. And I found that it was just filled with all these fillers and bad carbs and things that didn't provide any uh, nutritional value for them. And when I had switched them over to a more natural product with higher quality ingredients, they were really only consuming maybe, you know, Three and a half to five cups a day. So you're really cutting down on the quantity. You're using about half as much dog food, but it's it's a higher quality. So really, the the cost um, is is kind of a non-issue at that point.
2: That's really interesting, and I've never heard anybody say that. But you know, that's gosh, you find that with a lot of products. Sometimes the more expensive products are more highly concentrated or somehow more effective, so you use less, and the cost becomes. You know, the cost differential between something cheaper and something more expensive becomes negligible. Right, um, but exactly. I, I didn't realize that. So so actually, with all those fillers and, and things that the, the body of your pet can't use, you actually have to feed them more of that stuff. You could get by with, with feeding them less right. of the good stuff. And so the cost differential is, is really not an issue. What about the health costs? Um, difference in you know, vet visits when you have your pets on a healthier diet. I'm sure that's got to affect the total cost of ownership as well.
4: Oh, my gosh, absolutely. You know, one thing that we've seen, um, you know, and the same thing in humans when we don't follow good, healthy diets is that um, the cost of health care is rising like crazy with animals. I mean, everything from... They've got cardiovascular disease, they've got arthritis, all different kinds of cancers, um, different dental diseases. Um, So, you know, Newsweek said, I was reading an article that we have been spending upwards of $41 billion, um, they're projecting this year in 2009, just on pet products. And that doesn't even account for, I mean, we spent billions of dollars just in, in health care. So if we started making healthier choices, I think we could start seeing some of those numbers come down, especially in a time when our you know, economy has really been struggling and, and people, you know, they don't want to sacrifice the things and the quality products they're giving to their pets, but they're kind of, you know, they, they have some real concerns.
2: Well, and they're, they're absolutely legitimate. I think, you know, part of the reason that the puppies that I just adopted were abandoned is because of the economy. People, you know, in certain areas of the country are having to make some extremely tough choices, and when your home is in foreclosure and you've just lost your job, sometimes feeding your, your kids is all you can do, and feeding your pets, you know, may be a difficult option. That's why... So many of the rescue organizations are overloaded right now. Um, but the fact is, for those of us who, who have pets, folks who are rescuing pets, um, when you look at the total cost of ownership of a pet, you know, the, the economy comes into the same issues that we're talking about with the current presidential, you know, administrations talk about health care and this focus on wellness. If we look at, you know, doing things right at the beginning, uh, sure. doing things right to be healthy, then over the long haul, our cost of ownership, whether that's of ourselves and our own health care or our pet's health care,
4: is lower. It will really have a significant impact.
2: Well, now talk to us just a little bit in the couple minutes that we have left about Bidoka, um, what people can find when they go out to your website and, and how they can interact with you and with the company. Talk to us about your company. I'd love for all of our Go Green Radio listeners to get out there and become a part of Bidoka.com.
4: Sure, absolutely, Jill. Thank you very much for having us on. And, you know, we're still in the the early developmental stages. Um, The site is live but not completely functional. There are some great tools that you can use, though. Um, If you register, we can send you updates. There's a great pet news section. So there are a lot of valuable resources that people can take advantage of right now.
2: Well, I love it. Thank you so much for being on with us, Nikki, and we'll talk to you soon. We'll be here next time, next week, with the same great Go Green Radio information that you count on every week. Have a great week, and we'll be back with more Go Green Radio next time.